You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Hey, good morning. Hope you had a great, uh, what was it, Uh, uh, Thanksgiving. Um, It was good. And uh, I love these Sundays after holidays because it gives me a time. And I I never plan these things out, how these things are going to work. But we really come to a celebration at the end of the book of Esther. So take your Bibles, Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a very short, brief three verses. Um, Many scholars don't think that it was written originally by the author who wrote Esther, uh, but was added sometime later. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, it's in the book. God wanted it there, so it's there. Um, that's where we're going to end up in just a few minutes. Uh, back in the 1770s, toward the end of the of that decade of the 1770s, America, those 13 colonies were at war with the greatest power on earth, which was the British Empire. And uh, in 1778, things had gone very difficult for Washington those first couple of years, and we were desperately in need of France to give us credit, money, military aid, anything that they could give to us. And so the Continental Congress turned and said, who can we send, who's the best guy we've got to send to France to get out of the French what we desperately in need of to help fight the British. And so they turned and they made Benjamin Franklin a polypotentiary, an ambassador to France, shipped him over there. Everybody in France knew Franklin. They were fascinated about his study of electricity. They knew the whole story of, you know, the kite and all that stuff. They knew about the glasses and bifocals because of uh, Franklin. They knew about the stove, all these things. Everybody in the upper part of society wanted to meet with Franklin. And so he would wine and dine them. And all the time he was getting out of them all the resources that the colonies needed uh, to carry on a war with Britain. Well, while he was there, everybody wanted to have Franklin to dinner, and there was this society, a literary society that invited Franklin to come and be a part of their literary society. They were a group of atheists who studied literature, and they turned to this deist whom they were convinced was an atheist himself and invited him to come and to bring a story because that's what they did. It was like a book club. You came together and you would, you know, recite this story, tell the story that you'd read. So Franklin shows up, and he begins to recite a story to them they'd never heard. Uh, They were fascinated. He had them all in the palm of his hand as he began to just unfold the plot of the story, and he shared with them this incredible story that at the end they cheered. This literary society of atheists literally cheered Franklin's story. And they began to just compel him, tell us, did you write this? Where did you get this? Uh, Where did you hear this? Is it original? Did you find this somewhere? And Franklin told them what I've just shared with you with the names changed to protect the innocent. Uh, He changed the names in the story. And uh, he said, what I've just shared with you is the story of Esther found in the Bible. And the atheists all of a sudden dismissed the story and summarily dismissed Franklin from their society. 
In other words, they started cancel culture. That's it. Y'all have a good week. No. There it is. Uh, You don't have to go too far back in history to find that the people of God and the Word of God has always been canceled, and that's exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to go back there, and I'm going to really kind of start and kind of summarize through the book of Esther as I come to the end, and then I want to show you just two things out of chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, When you come to the opening of Esther, you come to a banquet. When you come to the end of Esther, you come to a banquet. And there are a couple of banquets thrown in the middle right there. So it's a fascinating book of great uh, banquets that take place all along the way. Um, When I thought about this early this morning, I was thinking, if I were making a movie, uh, how would I cast the book of Esther? Well, Esther would have to be um, a Disney princess. You just pick whoever you want. Uh, a Disney princess, that's kind of what you see when you come to Esther, uh, with the exception that she's extremely smart, very talented, very gifted, uh, very shrewd, um, outfoxes every man in this book, uh, but she's a Disney princess with a brain. Um, then you come to Mordecai, and I thought about Mordecai, and I thought to, and some of y'all will not know this, but know this person, but he's perfect for the part, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Here's Mordecai right here. You don't think he's ever going to come out on top, but in the end, Jimmy Stewart always comes out on top. Uh, when you come to King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, Uh, I had to think of who in the world could play that everybody would understand Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, because when Xerxes is acting like a king, he really does a good job at acting, but his personal life, life is an unholy mess. He can't run it. He makes, do you notice through the whole of this book, he only makes really one decision. And uh, in that whole decision that he makes, uh, God uses him in the midst of that. But this is a guy who never rules his kingdom. He could never do what his grandfather Cyrus did, and that is establish a kingdom. He tries to run it, but he never runs anything. Um, He tries to lead the army, but they're defeated in the battle that they have with the Greeks. So I'm, I'm putting Tom Cruise in for Xerxes. And then when you come to Haman, I think I've got a picture of Haman. They've uncovered a picture in uh, Susa. There he is. He is a Bond villain. That is any Bond villain you want to pick. I just happen to like that Bond villain right there, Jaws. Um, uh, that's, That's the villain in the story. Now, at the very beginning, you come to Esther chapter 1, and what you've got is you've got uh, the king throwing a banquet, trying to influence men to give him military power, trying to get men and nations to give him money to invade a country that they do not own. And in the middle of that, you remember what happens to his wife, Vashti, the queen. He summons her. She will not come. And so then he is going to dethrone her, dismiss her, and most likely has her put to death. Out of that, his advisors come to him and say, listen, why don't you have 
all of these beautiful women across the empire brought in here. You spend a night with each one of them over the course of a, a year plus, and you determine who you want to be your next queen. Well, he does everything that he's advised to do. So he acquiesces to that and says, that's great. Now watch this. Here's the interesting thing, which is not coincidental. You have got a young, virgin, orphan, Jewish girl who is going to be pulled away from the only family that's left her. Her parents died tragically some kind of way when she was young. She has this older cousin who becomes a surrogate father to her, and uh, she lives in the home with that uh, that cousin in his family, he tries to guide her, direct her, care for her, be a father to her, and she is yanked out of that situation. Now, think about that, having lost your parents, gotten into this foster home, and you're yanked out of that now, and you're put down into a pagan palace to become the possible wife. Uh, and once you spend the night with this king, you're tucked away in his harem forever. He may never see you again. Uh, but if you don't become queen, you are essentially forgotten. Well, she is chosen. You know, if you, if you go through the book, she is chosen. Surprisingly, everybody is shocked at this uh, by the king to be his new queen. And he throws a banquet for her, yet another banquet. He throws a banquet for her. And uh, as soon as she becomes queen, her cousin, her surrogate father, discovers there's a plot against the king by his own personal bodyguards. He gets word to Esther. He tells Esther, they're going to try to kill the king. You've got to tell him so he can save his life. And so on a particular occasion, she informs her husband, the king, that his bodyguards are just outside the door and they're plotting against his life. He has them arrested. He has them tried. It's true. And he has them hanged. They are executed and put to death. And you think, well, surely at this point, point he will do something that will express his gratitude to Mordecai. But it's only written. We're only told it's written down in the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. You come to chapter 3, and immediately out of nowhere, uh, you meet a guy by the name of Haman. You meet this Bond villain. And uh, Haman, we are told, is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, Agagites or Amaleks or, or, or Amalekites uh, that come from Amalek, Agagite, they're all the same people. These are the descendants of Esau. Now, what you've got with Mordecai and what you've got with Esther is you have descendants out of Jacob. You have Jews. Out of Esau comes these Arabs, all of these Arab people, and uh, now you have a descendant of Esau who are the sworn enemies of their first cousins, the Hebrews. Now, I can take you back to Exodus chapter 17, where you are introduced to them for the first time, and uh, what you see is they're coming out. Israel is just coming out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, into the wilderness, uh, they're out there. They're in the wilderness. They're hungry. God's providing manna for them. He's giving them water out of a rock. Uh, and uh, the Amalekites begin to attack them. 
They're going to attack them. They want to annihilate them. They want to wipe them out. They want to take all the gold and the silver and the fine material that they had gotten from the Egyptians. They wanted it for themselves. And what they would do, because God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, when Moses tells this to the next generation, he said, in fact, let's do this. Go right there to Deuteronomy 25. Look at uh, what the Lord says, because you, you won't understand what happens in chapter 9 of Esther if you don't have a good understanding of what's going on with these um, Agagites, Amalekites. Chapter 25, and listen to what the Lord says, beginning in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt how he met you along the way and attacked you among the stragglers and those at your rear and those who were faint and weary and did not fear God. What happened was when they could not defeat Joshua and the army of Israel in the valley of Rephidim, what they did was they followed at a distance. And they followed at a distance so that they could attack them at strategic moments. And they would attack them, those that were weakest, those that were oldest, those that were nursing babies. They were toward the end of the line of the Hebrews. And that's who they would attack. They would mercilessly kill sick people, old people, nursing mothers, women, children. And God said, I'm not going to forget that they did that. And so he comes in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and he says this, Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you, an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget this. Don't forget it. So what happens when they come into the land and they get a king by the name of Saul? Saul is told by God, go and wipe them out now. You go and you utterly blot them out. They're not going to do one thing. They are, in the Old Testament, a picture of sin and a person's life. It never gives up. It never stops the temptation, the lure, the seduction. It never stops. And if you give it a foothold of any kind, it spreads throughout the whole body. So that's what the Amalekites are. That's what the Agagites are in the Old Testament. It's a picture of what sin does in the life of a believer, in the life of the people of God. It wants to wipe you out. Satan has no love for you. None. He was a liar from the, he, was a, he is the father of all lies, and he was a murderer from the beginning. He wants to wipe out the people of God. Now, if you just kind of keep that in mind, I'll come back to that in, in a little bit. Well, Saul doesn't do it. So here is the old king, Agag, that Samuel the prophet picks up a sword and hacks him to pieces. Well, Haman was a direct descendant of that guy that Samuel hacked to pieces. And he has a hatred for these Jews, unlike anything you've ever seen. And so as he comes to power, and he has the power and the signet ring, which is the signature of the king, he makes an edict, and he deceives the king into killing all the Jews, but he never mentions that he's talking about the Jews. So you know the rest of the story, right? Mordecai finds this out. And Mordecai gets word to Esther, this is what has happened. And so he tells Esther, Esther, how do we know that you've not come to this position 
for this very purpose, for this time. Never mentions God, never talks about the Lord, never calls on the name of Jehovah, never says this may be the work of, all, of the Almighty, uh, of Adonai, Master. Never says any of that, but he does give the implication, this may be why you hold the office. Have you ever stopped to think why God has allowed you to be in the place that you are? You ever stop to think about that? It's, it's not, not, not there just so you can earn it. If you, it. Listen, if the bottom line of your life is to earn a check, you're missing life. God has put you in a strategic place for a strategic purpose. That's what Mordecai says to Esther. And he says, listen, Esther, if you don't do anything, let me tell you something. There will be help and it will arise from somewhere else. Now, he doesn't say God will do it, but the whole, you, listen, let me, let me just give you this truth. I want you to take this away from the book of Esther if you don't take anything else away, and that is this, is that when God tells a story, though never mentioned, he dominates the plot. He dominates the plot of your life. He said, well, I don't see God moving. You're not looking. You're not watching. That's all you see in this book is that God is continuously moving in and out of situations. And let me tell you this, he's moving in and out of people's lives who never mention him. Now, I tell you what, as a preacher, I hate this point, but I've got to be honest with myself. These are very nominal Jews. These are very nominal followers of Jehovah. They never talk about him. They never mention worship. They never in any way describe the word of God. None of that do you see in the book of Esther, and yet God keeps pulling their fat out the fire. How about you? Because I get to this, and I, I just have said this over and over to the Lord in my times of study. I said, God, why do you do this for such nominal, non-committed, casual believers? And he says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not why do I bless them, it's why do I bless you? Just sit there. It's too early, isn't it? Y'all stayed up too late last night watching all that stuff. Well, just think about it. It's not how God blesses some. God's, listen, God is sovereign to bless whomever God chooses to bless. That's not the question. The question is, why has God blessed me? I know what I've done. I can speculate about you, you see. So he tells Esther, you, you, you got to do something. And Esther says, I can't go before the king unless he sends for me because that's automatic death. And I haven't seen my husband in quite some time. He hasn't sent for me for a while. And Mordecai says, listen, I'm just telling you, if you don't do it, God will have to, well, he doesn't say God, but he just says help's going to come from somewhere. So she says, okay, if I die, I die. And she goes in to see her husband. You, know, you remember, he says, tell me what you want. He extends the scepter to her. She doesn't die. He says, tell me what you want. She says, I want you and I want Haman over there to come to a banquet. I want to I fix y'all a big dinner. And uh, I want y'all to come to it. Uh, I want you to come to this, this big banquet, this feast that I'm going to put on for you. And so they do. They come that day and you think, okay, now she's going to tell him, but she doesn't. And it's all wrapped up into God's timing. I'm going to talk about God's timing in a moment. But it's all wrapped up in God's timing. She doesn't tell him why. Because God wants one more night to pass before she does. 
Because what happens in that night is that Haman can't go to sleep so excited that he's going to put Mordecai on the gallows. And um, for whatever reason, Xerxes cannot sleep because I think God's disturbed him. And he says, bring me the book. Bring me the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians and read it to me. And they happened to pick up the book that tells the story of how Mordecai saved his life. And he said, did I ever do anything for that guy? And the word was, no, you didn't. So Haman is there in the court early the next morning. He says, send Haman in here. And he tells Haman, he says, Haman, listen, this is what I want to do. There's a man in my kingdom that I really want to honor. Well, Haman's thinking, it's me. It's me. He says, what would you like? What do you think a man that I would like to honor would want? So Haman starts just spilling out all that he wants. And what he wants is he wants the king's throne. Give me the king's robes. Give me the king's horse on whom you place the king's th uh, crown. Um, send the greatest noble in all the kingdom to pull me around on that horse throughout Susa and announce to everybody, this is the man whom the king honors. And Xerxes turns to him and says, great idea. You're the guy to go get Mordecai and do that for him. Now, he does that. And the only way he makes it through that is that he knows the next morning he's still in good with the king and the queen. He's going to a second banquet, just the three of them, just the three of them at a very private banquet prepared by the queen herself. And so she, he goes the next day along with the king. Esther is there, and the king says, come on, honey, tell me now. What is it that you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And so she lets him in on the plot. Now, you know all that happens from there on. I've just recapped all of this for you. Some of you have not been here through all of this, but I, I've just recapped it. They're going to hang Haman on the gallows that Haman built to hang Mordecai on. That's just one of the amazing reversals that you find throughout the entire book of Esther. They're going uh, to put Haman up on those gallows, and they're going to Hang him. And by the way, that's not hanging like out in the American West. You know, it's not go get a rope, let's hang him, boys. It was a skewering is what it was. They skewered him on the end of a pole so that he would be stuck through his body and would wiggle and writhe on that pole 75 feet up in the air. These were pleasant people. Um, they devised some real wicked ways to put people to death. Now, you come to this whole thing now, and here's the issue. I shared with you this whole tangled mess last week in chapter 8 where you've got the law of the Medes and the Persians, and that could not be done away with. But Xerxes now, used of God, calls Mordecai in, gives him the ring that had been on Haman's finger, that had written the edict against the Jews to put all the Jews to death, on the 13th of Adar. Now, keep that date in your mind, the 13th of Adar. It was at the end of the year. We would say it's like December. It's at the end of the year. He's gone a year. What Haman does is he calls in the witches and the necromancers, those who talk to the dead, 
And he has them cast lots to find the right date to put all the Jews to death because he's going to kill Mordecai and he's going to kill all of the Jews and they come down to the date. So what they do in chapter 8 is this. They issue another edict that says that on the 13th of Adar, the Jews have a right to defend themselves. They do not have a right to go to war. They do not have a right to go out and just start slaughtering people. They do not have a right to go out and take their aggressiveness and their upset and their bitterness out on other people. But if people come against them, they have a right to defend themselves. Now, that's where you are when you come to the ninth chapter of Esther. You see, this day shows up. Payday always comes, folks. And this day shows up. And what I want you to see is this is that here, when God tells this story, though his name is never mentioned, you need to understand he dominates the plot of this whole thing. He's watching out for his people regardless of how little faith they show in him. Regardless of how little commitment they show in him. Regardless of how little, really, love they express to him. God keeps faith with his people. Now, you come to chapter 9, verse 1, I want you to see this. Because of God, because of God in their life, because of God in our life, we will not suffer endlessly. Do you remember we were just singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? And we came to that one verse up there that said, uh, O Come, and end the suffering. Remember, end the suffering. Well, listen, this is part of what this is telling you is that because of God, because of our Lord, we will not suffer endlessly. Now, let me give you one verse, if I could, out of the New Testament. Out of John chapter 16, verse 33, remember what Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to suffer. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have hardship. You're going to run up on situations that are very difficult to deal with. In this world, you will have tribulation But now what did Jesus say? Take courage. Why? I've overcome the world. There will be a day when suffering for the people of God will cease. There will be a day for you personally when it will cease in some way or another. It may be eventually God will take you home. That will be the end of your suffering in this life. I can promise you that. It may be a situation you're going through. God will step in. God will not allow you to suffer endlessly. The same is true for the church. The church today is suffering. And the church in America is about to enter into a period of time that you're going to see we've never faced in this country before. I keep telling you that it is coming. I don't care who is in the White House. It is coming. Why? Jesus said, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. Well, for the nations of the world, for the people of God that are in the nations of the world, one day we're going to be taken out of this. Now, you come back in this ninth chapter, the first verse. Boy, that's a long introduction, isn't it? You know what? If I had one of my students give an introduction that long, I'd, I'd give them a C on it, and I'd start from there. So, I've already started off with a C this morning. Let's see what I can do here now with this. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, this is going to give you the whole picture of what happens. This may be the greatest reversal in the book. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, 
On the 13th day, which the king's command and edict were about to be executed, that's the day that Haman had uh, set as the day to kill the Jews, to wipe out all the Jews. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. There is the great reversal. Here are the people who hated the Jews. They were going to destroy the Jews that day, and yet in the end, it's the people of God who destroyed their enemies. Now, let me tell you, I want to show you something in this whole thing that is uh, fascinating to me. When you come to the opening of Esther, there is never a word of prejudice against the Jews spoken. Not a word. No prejudice, no bias. In fact, what does it keep telling us? Over and over, you read this statement, 127 provinces, all the way from North Africa, all the way through India. That whole, that whole 1040 window, which, by the way, is where the, 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 those that have never heard the gospel, more people live in that area right there in the world today that have never heard the gospel. Uh, that's where we need to concentrate a lot of our energy to take the gospel to those 6,000-plus language groups that have never heard the name Jesus in their language. Now, that's his empire. The 1040 window is his empire. It's nothing said that there were people in that empire. We don't like their race. We don't like their color. We don't like their culture. We don't like their society. None of that is stated. None of that is said anywhere. Until you come to Haman... And the hatred in the heart of Haman for a race of people called the Jews, that's where you see, listen, one man does all of this out of hatred for a race of people. That's where prejudice comes from. That's where bias bows up. That's where you get all this stuff from. Is out of the heart of one single man by the name of Haman who happens to hate a particular race of people known as the Jews. And he says, I'm going to kill them. And what he's going to do is this. He's going to influence his own ten sons. You teach prejudice. You teach it. It is a learned hatred. For whatever reason, it may not be race. It may be, listen, he was as brown as the Jews were doesn't have to be about color. It can be about anything in the world. And he taught his 10 sons to hate the Jews, and he influenced people inside the citadel of Susa, and he influenced people across the empire of the Persians. And you're going to see that in a second as well. Prejudice is something that, listen, let me tell you, has no part or place with the people of God. Our God created all of us. And I'm going to give you two things that I am convinced add to the prejudice that we struggle with in America. Number one is evolution. Number one is evolution. By the way, where does prejudice come from? It comes from the fact that Satan hates God and hates God's creation. And what does he do? He tries to divide everything. He tries to divide a husband and a wife. He tries to divide children and their parents and parents and their children. He tries to divide 
University of Alabama and Auburn. He tries to divide. He tries to divide everything he can divide. He tries to divide it. Pastor and people, church and staff, pastor and staff, division, prejudice. It all comes out. It hatches in the mind of Satan, and it is planned out in the bowels of hell. Prejudice. Why are y'all so quiet? Now, listen. Here this is, and evolution just supports it. Because evolution says, you're a freak of nature. You're an accident. You came up out of a mud puddle of amino acids, and your life means nothing, and you have no special place in this world, and yet the Word of God says you are created in the image of God. Now, which one do you think better supports prejudice? I'll give you the second thing, abortion. Your life is worth nothing. You're worth nothing. What did slavery say to people? You're a piece of property. You're worth nothing. To do away with you is nothing. You're just a financial figure to me. And let me tell you, abortion in America is a financial figure to the industry. Life is cheap. We don't need you. There's nothing special about you. What's the difference between looking at a child and saying, you were created in the image of God, and you need to understand you are a special gift to your parents? Hear me now. Listen to me later, but I'm telling you the truth. And this whole issue of prejudice now leads these Jews to have to defend themselves. Because they were so hated, look at what happens. All I can do is just quickly, I'm over time now, and I'm not even through my first point. So let me just give you this very quickly. Watch it what happens here. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword. That's verse 5. Killing and destroying them, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And verse 12, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. So he influenced at least 500 people in the government to be prejudiced against the Jews as well as his own 10 sons. He's responsible for the death of his 10 sons. You come down in verse 16. In verse 16, it says they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But did you notice, let me point this out, that all through there, we are told three times they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They did not, verse, that's verse 10. Verse 15, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, at the end, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. We're, we are told that in the edict of Haman, that they were to kill every male Jew, female Jew, and every child Jew. They never touched women and children. They went after those who were actively part of the militia that came after them, and they never touched their wealth because the people of God do not kill people for money. You don't take it. You don't steal it. That's not the reason you defend yourself. But they were given the right to do that. Now, they went a year. Now, let me just give you two quick things and get to the last point as I wrap this up. There, there, there are two things to understand in this. They went a year, number one. They went a year thinking that we're going to be annihilated. We're going to be killed. They've got a threat. They, they, they are going to round us up in the exact same way that Hitler did, and they're going to put us to death. Uh, they're going to kill us. That's what's going to happen. They went a year suffering like that. The anxiety, 
the mental, the mental stress and all of that. Now listen to me. And you come to the very day, look at this and remember this, God never is late in your life. On the day, not the day before, but on the day they were to be destroyed, God delivers them. God is never, ever late. God never gets in a hurry. I just absolutely love that old gospel song, and Mary ran to Jesus, and then she cried, Lord, if you had been here, you could have healed him. He'd still be alive. But you're four days late, and all hope is gone. Lord, we don't understand why you waited so long. But his ways are God's ways, not yours and not mine. And isn't it great that when he's four days late, he's still on time. He's never late. He's always on time. Some of you are struggling through some of that right now. And listen to the second thing, and the second thing is this. God never calls audibles. Never calls an audible. Bryce Young did. Finley did. Uangalele, if he's got enough sense in a game to call one, he'll call one. God never calls an audible because God never shows up. <laughs> he never shows up on the line of scrimmage and looks over and sees something that he doesn't already know about. Son, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He never sees anything in our life that comes as a surprise. Let me give you the second thing quickly, and the second thing is this, is because of God. Listen, you'll, you will not suffer endlessly but you can celebrate endlessly, eternally. That's exactly this ninth chapter. Just listen to what is said here. Verse 17, this was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they, raised, uh, they rested and they made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Verse 18, a day of feasting and rejoicing. Verse 19, a day of feasting and uh, a, a, of rejoicing and fasting. Verse 22, it says, the sorrow from them, sorrow into gladness. He turned that, all of that sorrow into gladness of mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing. Do you get the picture? It's just like this past Thursday. It was a great day. Deb outdid herself. More food than we could eat for three different meals. Relaxing, we sat around, we watched Football, we talked, we enjoyed each other's company, all of that. That's exactly what was established here. What was established was this, is that there was a day of celebration. Now, look, watch this. Do you know every time the Jews are nearly wiped out, God gives them yet another holiday to celebrate? <laughs> is that not fascinating? When Pharaoh's killing all the male children down there in Egypt and wants to keep them in slavery until they just drop dead, they get out of there, and they get out of there because uh, they live, because they sacrificed the lamb, and the blood over their door spared their lives. Now listen, what did they celebrate out of that? Come on, Passover, Passover. You come to Haman right here, what are they going to celebrate? Purim. 
Do you know where Purim comes from? From the word poor, P-U-R, which is what? It was the lot, the dice that Haman would cast to find when to kill him. They take the word poor and it becomes Purim. So they use the very word almost as a joke. Do you know what they do on Purim? The men will write Haman on the bottom of their shoes. They'll give all the kids noisemakers to take to church. Now, this is kind of like uh, uh, tailgate Sunday at Valleydale. They dress up crazy stuff like y'all doing all, all that stuff and all that day. They bring noisemakers to the synagogue that night. Men write the name of Haman on their shoe. And when they get there, you know what they do? They read the book of Esther. And as they read the book of Esther and they come to the name of Haman, the men all stomp their feet like they're stomping Haman. They all dress up, by the way, like it's Halloween, not, not as ghosts and goblins, but they dress up like Esther, like Haman, like Mordecai, like Xerxes. They, they come and they start booing and hissing when they hear name, and they start blowing or working these noisemakers so you drown out the name of Haman. And they have so much fun on that night, they get up the next morning to do the whole thing again. They come back to the synagogue the next morning, and they read the book of Esther for the second time. So out of Haman, you get Purim that they're to celebrate for eternity. Do you, do you hear what uh, Esther says here? It comes here and it says this. It says that they are to do it all the days. Verse 28 of chapter 9. These days of Purim were not to fail among the Jews or their memory. Fade from their descendants. Every year this is to be done. You get to the intertestamental period time, the Seleucids are, are ruling out uh, in the Middle East, and you get a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He thinks he's a real special guy. He calls himself the appearing, Antiochus the appearing. And uh, here he comes, and he comes into Israel, and he slaughters tens of thousands of Jews, builds an altar to Zeus in the temple of God, sacrifices a pig on it, takes the blood, splatters it all over the temple, and he forces the priests of the temple to eat the pork. You know what comes out of that? Starts tomorrow night at sundown. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hitler, going to kill the Jews. Six and a half million of them. He kills, maybe more. And you know what happens? Germany surrenders under Yodel. Yodel comes and he surrenders uh, to Montgomery. Uh, unconditional surrender, uh, Eisenhower demanded. So they surrender uh, Germany on May the 7th, 1945. One, uh, three years and one week later, May 14th, 1948, the day Israel declares its independence. They're back in the land for the first time in over 2,000 years. Son, how do y'all sit there? That gives me goosebumps. Huh? And they celebrate their independence now. And let me tell you something. They will be there until Jesus comes back. I can promise you. If the whole world turns on them. And by the way, listen, the whole world is going to turn on them. And Jesus is going to show up, and the battle will be over with. It won't be much after that. Now, look at this. As I, and I've got to be able to have a few extra minutes because I'm wrapping this up. Look at this. You come down to the last four verses. There are no chapter and verse divisions in Scripture. 
We have them there just to help us. Nothing sacred about it. Nothing inerrant about it. Verse 32 of chapter 9, you hear the command of Esther. You're going to come down to Esther, King Ahasuerus, Mordecai. Now, I've really struggled through what in the world is this here for. The command of Esther established these customs for poor. Who's running the country now? As it should be. Um, the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. It goes down. Lord have mercy. She's making the law of the Medes and the Persians now. She's establishing this. It goes down. Not only will the Jews not forget it, the Persians won't forget this day as, as well. Now you come to King Ahasuerus, verse 1, chapter 10. What does he do? What the government always does. Let's tax everybody. Why does he do that? He does it because he did not get the money out of the Jews that Haman had promised him, and he is a pure government product. And he says, I'm concerned about the money. I'm concerned about war. I'm concerned about striking back at Greece again, and I've got to replenish all of my coffers. And so what does he do? He does what the government does best, tax the people. Amen and amen. You know, that's going to be part of heaven. No tax. Well, that's what he does. And then you come, look at what it says about Mordecai. Let me just read this. All the accomplishments of his authority and strength in the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which he, the king, advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen. One who sought, now look, what does he do? He seeks the good their welfare. He seeks the good of the people. And he spoke for the welfare, the good of the nation. What did he speak to them? Look back up at verse 30 of chapter 9. Words of peace and truth. I'm going to tell you what I see in that. You have got a bride who is calling and inviting people to a celebration. Does that sound like the book of Revelation to you? Because a bride is being called to a celebration. We're the bride, and we're being called to this celebration. Who does Ahasuerus sound like? All the nations of the world that reject God. He has seen all that God did in the life of his wife, in the life of Mordecai. He watched as he himself said, take him out and hang him, Haman. He saw God do all of this, preserve the Jews, care for the Jews. And what does he say? Like the governments of this world, we could care less about the things of God we're interested in the things of the government. And who does Mordecai look like to you? He's dressed in white. He's got a crown on his head. And the Bible says what? What's he doing? He is looking out for the welfare of his people. That's your God. That's my God. That's a picture of Jesus Christ who comes back and what does he do? He speaks words of peace and truth to us. Here endeth the lesson. 
Let's stand. The book of Esther. You come to the end. And the invitation is, your suffering does not have to last forever. And you get to be a part of the eternal celebration of God. But you're going to have to do that through Jesus Christ. So that if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let me ask you the question, why not? And if not, why not this morning? Why not in this moment as we give an invitation? I invite you to come to Jesus. I'm not inviting you to come to Baptist or a church or a denomination. I'm inviting you to come to Jesus Christ. To put your faith and your trust in a God who loves you and cares for you, who has blessed your life, even though you may not have been aware of it. God's been continuously blessing your life. Others of you, God's brought to this place. This has become a home to you. This has become a haven to you. This has become the place where the Word of God is spoken to you, taught to you. You need to come and make this your church home. You need to step out this morning and say, we're going to decide today this becomes the place where we invest our lives in the kingdom of God. Some of you young people this morning, God's been speaking to your heart. He's calling you to ministry. You don't understand it all. I didn't understand it all. All I knew to do was just say, okay, God, I don't know what you're calling me to do, but you will not leave me alone. You continuously call me. So I just surrender. Maybe this morning you need to come and do that. I'm surrendering to whatever God's call on my life is. Or maybe you just need to come and get at this altar this morning. Father, in these moments, as we give this invitation in your name for your glory, before these, all of us that you've created, not a one of us here by accident, I pray, Father, this morning that you'd be honored by what we do in this place. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Would you come? Just slip out right now and make that decision for Christ. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.